Gen X Playback, episode number 30. He's bounded down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound just like no bandit run. Keep your foot hard on the pedal. Hey, welcome to the Gen X Playback Show, your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And you are listening to Mr. Jerry Reed, who hails from one of our favorite towns that listens to the Gen X Playback Show, and that would be Atlanta, Georgia. And Sean, you know, this brings back some good memories for us because of all the Smokey and the Bandit movies that Jerry Reed was part of. Oh, yeah. A very prominent character. And it was just, you know, one of those fun slapstick kind of movies that, as a little kid, made you laugh, made you giggle. You guys, you love Buford T. Justice and, and, of course, Bandit. And it was just one of those fun movies. And Jerry Reed, actually, I didn't know this until after the... Uh, those movies, but I didn't realize that he was quite an accomplished country music singer going into that movie. I just remembered him from the movie Smoking the Bandit. Oh, from our perspective, definitely. That's the first that I ever saw him. And it not it funny how, like, when you're older, like, and you would have been from that country music scene, which was probably what they were going for when they created this movie. That was the core. Sure. They would have known who Jerry Reed was. Oh, they, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was a, he was a big-time star. He was. And I remember, the only other thing I remember about Jerry Reed was that he was on an episode of Alice because his he played, uh, according to the storyline, was that when he was a little baby, that Flo used to babysit him. Okay. And that was, I remember him guest starring on the episode of Alice, but he ended up singing on the show. Mm-hmm. But he was known there as a performer, not as an actor, as a singer. Okay. So. Well, you know, the as we heard in the lyrics there, you know, with our you know our listeners there in Atlanta, well, you know, there's beer in Texarkana, and they're thirsty in Atlanta. That's right. Now, Jerry Reed hails from, you know, he's born in Atlanta, Georgia, and, I, you know, I chose Jerry Reed just kind of for that, that childhood uh, spark to, to bring back the memories for mm-hmm. you and I. There's certainly, Atlanta has had many, many big-time uh, performers. One, I almost played Gladys Knight because she is also from Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, as, as an older adult, I really have grown to appreciate Gladys Knight and the Pips. And, uh, you know, Gladys Knight, one of the great R&B singers of her generation, the 70s and the 80s, um, you know, could have played Love Overboard. That was from 1987. That's okay. something we could have related to. Uh, but there's, all, um, you know, the band TLC. Oh, yeah. Came sure. From, yeah. Came from Atlanta, yeah, Georgia. Yeah, I like TLC. Uh, even though not all the members were from Atlanta. That's but they were based they were out of Atlanta. Right? Yeah. T-Boz was from Atlanta, Georgia. But there's a lot of, especially in hip-hop, there's a lot of hip-hop uh, influence and a lot of artists in, in today's music that are from the Atlanta, Georgia but there, area. There's, for a long time, there's been a big music scene in Atlanta. You know, one of my favorite YouTubers, Rick Beato, mm-hmm. who I know you like to watch. Yes. You know, he's Atlanta-based. Right. And so back during his heyday, probably the early 2000s when he was a producer, you know, he was getting artists that were coming in through Atlanta. So probably at one time it was country music. I'd say early on then it, it really became a hip-hop town. Yeah. And then probably there in the 2000s, you know, when Rick Beato was doing things, it, you know... W- 
how would you classify the music in the in the early two thousands? That that it wasn't obviously it was post grunge. It was post grunge, but it was not quite alternative. It, but it was it was rock, but yeah, no, it, yeah. It, it it was a sound that you know I think probably you know could be identified from Atlanta as, as much as anywhere else. Sure, and uh, you know I had the opportunity to go down to Atlanta back in two thousand and twelve. Amy's uh, aunt and uncle, uh, Richard and Terry, who passed away, but her cousins, Ross and Drew, they live down in the Atlanta area. It's a beautiful area. I highly recommend you visit the city. It's it's a cool city to, to go around. You know, put up with the traffic because there's a couple of main highways that sort of crisscross there in Atlanta, and you will get stuck in traffic at some point somewhere. But as far as a city, it, it's really beautiful. And the outlying areas, uh, I know where uh, Richard lives is in the Marietta, uh, Georgia area, which is right outside of, of the city. But it's a beautiful town. And the the stadium where the Atlanta Braves play is right there in the heart of the city. You can see it right off the highway. It's, okay. it's, it's very cool. It's, uh, you know, a lot of highways, probably the busiest airport in the United States. I've right flown through it. I, I don't know that I've ever left the airport. Uh, you know, the week that I was down there in, in 2012, it was, I believe, the hottest week of the year down there. The the coolest day was 97 Okay, when we taxied out of Atlanta International, and I'm sitting in the airplane, and they had this out on the tarmac. They had a thing that had the temperature showing, and it was showing at 107 mm. when, when I left. So, yeah, I was glad to get back to Pennsylvania uh, after, after working down there. But Atlanta, Georgia, we certainly do thank you for listening to the Gen X Playback Show. And for those of you around the world and in the United States, we're now uh, listened to in 22 countries and 48 states in the United States. Yeah, we picked up some. So it's at this point, it's almost like what state isn't listening to us? And I can tell you, uh, South Dakota. South Dakota, come South Dakota on. and Maine are not on the uh, really Genesis, Maine. Yeah. Those are the only two. Yeah, so well, we're gonna have um, to have to work on that, Scott. But it's really cool that that we're able to reach out to so many different people, and that there's, uh, you know, we found this common ground to with listeners around that that share our love of these particular decades. And you're going to cover, I think, for me as a as a youngster, just getting into any kind of culture recognizing something that was bigger than yourself or your life or your house or your neighborhood or school, you know, something that was on an, on a world or national level. You're going to talk about something that for me was maybe one of the first things I remember of that, of that uh, stature as a young kid growing up. And of course uh, what Scott's referencing is the 1980 men's hockey team, also known as the miracle on ice. You know, the, the team that is best remembered for Beating the Russians, um, the the you know at the time the greatest team in the world, but they did win the gold medal. So we'll get into that later on and and talk about how um, you know not only what was this incredible upset that that they they had over the Russian team, um, but also the fact that you know he, there's a, a gold medal team. Yes, they they won the gold medal, but that happens all the time where you know you have Olympic champions from this country. But why was it that this particular team captured the American imagination? So much so that we are talking 43 years later, because when Scott and I are recording this, this is, this is 2023, that it's still regarded as the greatest moment, um, maybe, in, in American sports history? Well, I know there have been many publications that rank this as the greatest 
a sports moment in 20th century history. Well, yes, because I and I know Sports Illustrated definitely was one publication that listed that. So you know, I don't know of another one, and which is amazing when you think about it. The, the 20th century, you you have everyone from Babe Ruth yeah. to to Muhammad Ali to uh, you know various uh, you know like Secretariat or you know mm-hmm. w- w- you name it. This is considered the greatest sports moment and arguably one of the greatest moments, period, in the 20th century. Yeah, and the the phrase that was brought up by Al Michaels at the end of the broadcast against the Russians, mm-hmm. where he says, do you believe in miracles? And I think the funny thing was, you know, about it, is as a young kid, I didn't really understand how much the odds were stacked against the Americans. But yet, it was something that captivated not only adults, but little kids as well. It was, one, like I said previously, one of the first things that I remember an entire nation talking about. You couldn't right. go anywhere right. without talking about the hockey team. Right, right. For two weeks. Basically, yep. for two weeks, this team that we're going to get into of, of college kids. You know, these are, I think the youngest guy on the team might have been 19 uh, I think uh, was it was it Ramsey? He, he was like one of the youngest. But regardless, we're talking 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds. Some guys, kind of like you, maybe had graduated, like Mikey Ruzioni. Yeah, you know, might have been a little bit older, but just there in that range. I think the average age of the team is twenty one. It was twenty one, and I think you're right. Ruzioni was twenty four. Yeah, which he, he had, was the oldest yeah, by a couple of years. He had come back. Yeah, right. So. um you know, whenever you you kind of talk about this team, and you know, Scott and I, yes, we're doing this podcast, and it, it's something I think we need to discuss as you know, talking about the Gen X era. Where what can we have? Well, it's a little bit different from the other perspectives because there's a lot of documentaries out there mm-hmm. on this. You know, of course, I think you know, Scott and I, we're going to reference the the great movie Miracle mm-hmm. that stars Kurt Russell, and it really does set a great timeline for yeah. for how the everything played out, right? And but, you know, we come with a different perspective, right? So, you know, Scott and and I are really young when this happens in 1980, when, when, when this Olympic run happened. I'm 11 years old. And Scott, you're eight at the time. I hadn't, yeah. Hadn't tur- I was, yeah, I was ter- good to turn nine later. Right, going to turn nine later on. Yeah. And so we're... We're old enough where we start to have memories, mm-hmm. you know, where, but, and, and also old enough where you and I, around this time, we're catching the, the, the sports bug, mm-hmm. you know, where the 1976 Olympics was around. And I kind of remember it. See, and I don't. Kind of. Yeah. I remember Sugar Ray Leonard. I remember that. He was a big star. I remember Bruce in. Jenner. Bruce Jenner on the, on the Wheaties box, huge star. Those are the, those are the two names I don't really remember watching it a whole lot i i i remember they you couldn't miss it because back in those days we didn't have many channels right you know gen xers you know this and so when the olympics were on we didn't have espn didn't exist if you were into sports you were locked into the olympics you know abc was going to program your day for you so uh why why you know getting in kind of asking you is from this age you know What's your perspective on what's happening at the time? And and I, we'll get a little bit with it, what's happening in the world and, and maybe what our perspective is on that. But like, what are your thoughts coming into the Olympics that year? You know, 
at that particular time, I kind of felt like a sponge because I don't know if you're going to cover this or not, but I think it's safe to mention that for the area that we live in, there wasn't a whole lot of Olympic winter Olympic sports that were being exercised in our area other, other than skiing. I would say skiing might've been, or, or you go ice skating on somebody's pond. Right. Right. That was, that was about, that was really about it. But. We didn't have an indoor ice or arena. Well, I, I take that back. We had at our mall at park city mall. Right. Back then they had an ice skating rink in the basement. They did. And so that, but that was like getting, putting in your skates and going around in a circle. It was like going roller skating. Right. There was no, there were no ice hockey teams. They, definitely not. And, other other so there were no figure skaters there were no uh, just trying to think of some of the other olympic sports but uh you know you could there was no curling yes no curling <laughs> which sure. is actually now a big thing yeah uh, curling i didn't oh the last olympics i, I didn't miss at, at all and, you know because you can watch those other channels yeah i followed that u.s curling team okay you know there's just uh, there weren't a whole lot of winter olympic sports and i, I felt like a I felt like as a young viewer, as somebody who was, this was, uh, the nice thing about ABC and the lack of coverage from other channels was it was an event. Mm-hmm. So you looked forward to it because it was going to be on a lot. You're going to watch things and, and there is something to be said about watching somebody who is the best at what they do, no matter what it is athletically. You can always find some kind of appreciation for the best of their sport. Right. Whether it's figure skating, whether it's speed skating or hockey or, you know, in the Summer Olympics, it's track and field, it's gymnastics, you know, you just name it. But there is something to be said about watching somebody who is the absolute best of what they do. And so you kind of look forward to stuff like that, even though, for the most part, the United States in the Winter Olympics traditionally has always done very poorly, uh, you know, compared to other countries of that are much smaller than them, but they're... They're just geared more towards the winter, the winter Olympics. You know, the the summer Olympics has always been the U.S.'s time to shine, so where we, we win the most medals. Now that being said, America loves their female figure skaters. Yes, they do. So if you're Peggy Fleming or Dorothy Hamill, you are America's sweetheart. Yes, you know. So that I mean, the the broadcast was always going to center around that. So I I knew who the, those those mm-hmm. ladies were in particular growing up. I, I don't know that. I watched the Olympics a lot. I tell you, you know who I do remember that my the first Olympian that really stood out to me was Nadia Comaneci. Okay, in the '76 Olympics. Sure, I remember people making a big. She deal was about getting her. all those tens. Yeah, and so that's kind of where ABC. I don't know if I watched it live, but I remember ABC showing me right what happened. But you know, that being said, just to kind of say, I think for both of us, the 1980 Olympics is the first Olympics that you and I were getting ready for. That we knew the Olympics were coming. And we were we were kind of into it. We were, and you know, for us being from Eastern Pennsylvania, with us being Philadelphia sports fans, I think it's important to note that at that time, that is probably one of the best, you know, areas of success or you know times of success that all four Philadelphia sports teams experienced at the same time. So I think it was in 1980 or the 1980 seasons. The Sixers, Phillies, Eagles, and Flyers all went to their respective finals. Mm-hmm. And so I, it doesn't get much better than that. Now, only the Phillies won. But still, I mean, you're, you're the four teams that you cover in your city or that you're fans of, 
So for us, I think that we're kind of riding that crest, even though we knew nothing about the hockey team and how young, young and inexperienced they were. Well, I mean, we're going to root for these guys because they're winning and we're used to winning at that, at that point. It, right. Now, the star of the Winter Olympics in 1980 uh, was Eric Hyden. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he uh, five gold medals, five medals. In, in speed skating. Kind of unheard of because, uh, you know, it's interesting, Scott, you and I just had a conversation a little while ago about the difference between uh, being quick twitch, a quick twitch athlete and, and somebody, was it long twitch? I don't know the difference. But the idea is that it's very rare that when you are good at endurance, you're good at, at short space quickness and vice versa. Right. And Hyden is like the only skater ever to win the like the short races and the long races. Right. It's just not it's not done. Usually there's it's so rare for a human being to be able to do that. And after he wins these five gold medals, he gives up speed skating entirely and becomes a world class cyclist. And he's in the Hall of Fame for both both yeah. sports. But so and and the reason I bring up Eric Hyden is because he won gold medals. He won five gold medals. He was expected to win when he came in. So why did this group of players, who, when they win a gold medal, why did it, it bring about so much emotion from the Americans? Because Eric Hyden didn't do that. Right, correct. So, so, it, so we'll kind of set the stage a little bit. And, you know, Scott has already referenced to the fact that Scott and I are from, from Pennsylvania, from Nashville. You know, we, we have the largest podcast in yes, Nashville. Yes, we do. I, I don't know. Still. You know, listeners, if you know that out there, yeah. but... Uh, we check the Nesville charts. I think <laughs> we, we're still number one. We do on the on the on the local ratings. Uh, we we can't go to uh, to Petra's Variety Store like Scott talked so, about in a previous episode. It doesn't. The building doesn't exist anymore. But but if we go down the street to the Turkey Hill, we just get mobbed. <laughs> Turkey Hill is a, is a convenience store where we're at. So yeah. So the area that we're in um, is very close to a very major event that happened in the seventies, and that would be Three Mile Island. Yes. You know we are forty five minutes. From the location of Three Mile Island? Not even. Not even. It's probably probably inside of 40 minutes. I mean, it's... it. And do you remember it? I mean, it was, it was 1979. I, I they, mean, they made the announcement at school at Locust Grove. Okay. Because I remember the teacher saying something because they, they there was some kind of little powwow between the two homeroom teachers because we had in at our school, it was a small elementary school, so we had two homerooms in your grade. Mm-hmm. And I remember the teachers having a conversation and then we found out about it. Uh, but yeah, I do. I do remember the day that it happened. Right. And we eventually ended up going to high school with kids that literally were minutes. For, they they were like home. five, 10 minutes away. Yes. And um, it, 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 it's, it's, I remember just kind of the, the, I remember being at home and the news being on. And that, and that they were talking about it. Right. And, of course, they're telling us not to panic. You know, parents, your children are going to be fine. There won't be any uh, any damage suffered long term. Don't worry about it. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, everybody's scrambling, you know, thinking, you know, what has happened. So, to me, in a lot of ways, that's the first time I remember as a child kind of panic. Right. Right? So, so we're dealing with that. And, and in our region in particular, that was a big thing. Yeah, I, when you live in a in a community like Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I wouldn't say that you're insulated from everywhere, but we're a pretty self-sustaining area. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when when something like that happens, it's not a you know we're not a major city. You know, Lancaster, even though it was in by the Civil War, they were the fourth. Lancaster was the fourth largest city east of the Mississippi. 
we just never grew any bigger. We stayed the same size pretty much ever since. Yeah, and I think it's true with a lot of kids growing up and, you know, listeners out there, I mean, kind of identify for yourselves with this, but oftentimes as kids, you're just kind of unaware. I mean, you're, you're, you're a child. You're, you're living your life. You're not, hopefully, I mean, I think this is important for kids not to have to deal with grown-up issues. Right. I mean, that's not always the case. I mean, I'm sure some of our listeners have had to do, deal with some terrible things yeah. when they were kids. Uh, but best case scenario, I think, you know, it's good to let a kid be a kid. And I think for the most part, you and I were that way as kids. We, looking back now, we see things, you know, whether at times where, you know, our parents might have struggled with things, you know, mm-hmm. be it financially, but we didn't know. We didn't understand no those things. It, which leads into other things that was, you know, happening at that time. You know, the, the economy, uh, as we've come to learn, Scott and I both have history degrees. We both at, at some point went back and studied the fact that, boy, inflation was not good yeah. in the late 70s. Well, I think it's important to note our, that our family business, uh, you know, our dad owned a gas mm-hmm. station. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll talk about that. And, you know, the fact that twice in the 70s, I don't remember the first one. I'm too young. It was 73. It was the first one with the gas crisis where there were long lines, you know, with, with OPEC. But the second the, one was at 79? It was 79. And do you remember that in 79? I do. I remember the cars being lined up down the road for probably, I don't know, there's probably probably 30 or 40 cars lined so, up. So, uh, listeners, I don't know if you remember this, and, and maybe some of our listeners not from the country aren't going to remember this, but in 1979, because of the gas crisis, you could only fill up on one day if your license plate ended in like an if it was an odd number you could fill up that day odds and evens odds and evens and it flipped back and forth and scott and i because our our parents had this gas station at that age i don't know were you working there at that time we were, we were helping out. I was. I mean, I, I, had, I, I wasn't had a, pumping gas at that point, but I was there. So this is still the 70s, so self-service gas isn't really a thing yet, at least not in our area. Right. And I know in New Jersey, you still have people that pump the gas for you, but we were a full-service gas station, so yes. Sunoco, get, I can be very friendly. Yes, I can. That, was the, right. that was the ad campaign. That was the ad. And so, um, you know, Marv Heim uh, realized that there are no child labor laws for your own <laughs> children. So as a result... We had to work a shift, you know, frequently at the gas station, at least every every weekend for sure. Yeah. And so, you remember what we'd have to do? So they pull in, we'd 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 find out what their order was. Uh-huh. You know, it was like regular unleaded back then. It was one or the other, uh-huh. and then you would you would put it in, and then you you'd set it so you know it would run automatically. But then you would go around check the air pressure and the uh-huh. tires. You would oil. You would ask if they want you to check your oil because you know. Our dad was trying to upsell, and he wanted to sell some oil. That's right. And so, you know, keep in mind, you have these little kids, these little five, six-year-old kids out there checking your oil. Oh, we'd wash the windshields. Yep. I got pretty good at that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you came to High Sunoka, you got you got the full service. And if you wanted some tires, well, we had some tires in the back for you. And, it, you know, as, as people who change their oil or buy, you know, containers of oil now, it's the plastic with the spout, you yeah. know, the port. It's not what it, it came in a can, a, a tin can, and you had to pierce it. You had remember you had the funnel, absolutely the little funnel that you had to jam down. It that had was, like a spike at the end of for it. For a little kid like me, it was like <laughs> I, I was I was afraid I was going to take my fingers off, and I probably could have because I don't oh, think yeah. I, I don't think I was strong enough to pierce it. I always had to get somebody to do it for me. So I I do remember that. I remember that being such an issue. I, I think you were supposed to kind of check if you weren't supposed to fill up. Unless you were below half a tank, 
Right. It was something like that. And I remember, I remember uh, dad told us at one point, I think I interviewed him for a paper or something for school. He said that the gas man would not come during the day. He would come in the middle of the night and he had to drive over. The, the guy who drove the tanker yeah. that, that delivered the gas. Because they were afraid of getting hijacked and robbed or people following him in to try and get gas as soon as he uh, dumped into a gas station. Yeah. And that was a common thing. Like dad would literally go over to the gas station at like one, two o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and meet the guy over there so he could fill the tanks for the because station. Because gas stations would run out. Yes. I mean, every day. Every day. And so you, the, as Scott's saying, you know, the truck would show up at one o'clock in the morning, if not every day, every other day. And it, I, I do remember that. I remember the lines and I think, I think we put like a color coded flag out. I remember I, that. I, I think it was like red or blue or something like that, depending just, who could come in. We would put signs up down the street. Yeah, and say, you know, if it's like, you know, today we're servicing odd numbers or something like that. Or we would say we're out of regular. Right. We would we, we would put those signs up and say out of regular. Right. And then you'd see the cars just keep going down to the next gas station. Which regular was leaded yes, back then. Yes, it was leaded or unleaded. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I remember those days. So... Once, you know, so now it's 79. So here's two things, you know, Scott, you know, we kind of remember TMI, you know, we, we remember the gas crisis. I remember mom and dad being kind of panicked about inflation. Yeah. You know, I, I looked up what inflation rates would have been at this, at this time and 14, 15% is kind of what might've been out there. And I know people are kind of, it's, it's rates have gone up dramatically here, you know, in 2023, um, I think I don't, you know, sevens, you know, keep creeping up, getting closer to eight. Still, half of what our parents were experiencing, trying to keep a business open, and a business that because you know Scott and I joke about our dad having the largest tire store in Nashville, but when you would purchase things like tires as a business, you would need to get some type of line of credit, mm-hmm. and with that line of credit, you were paying interest, so it was cutting into the profitability. So once again, you know, I. I had mentioned that as kids, we didn't really necessarily know what was happening, especially when we were younger, because, you know, parents don't always discuss these things. But at this time, I'm starting to understand that, you know, mom and dad are getting a little nervous with what's happening in the world. You can sort of see, you can start to see people struggling a little bit. And, uh, you know, just, I just remember seeing that how angry people would get it at us at oh, the gas station. Yeah. And, you know, you said about being a little kid out there pumping gas. That didn't stop people from screaming at us. Yeah, we're <laughs> seven years old and they're yelling at me. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I, there was a lot of frustration on you know, people's voices. And you you, talk, you made a good point there about when you talk about interest rates. I remember the very first CD that I ever got from the paper out, and this was 1981. Okay. So this was probably even on the downside of inflation. Actually, in 81, I think it went up to like 16%. Well, my first, the first CD that I ever bought, I remember, it just stands out to me because it was at 18%. Oh, wow. Yeah. 18%. So if they were giving a CD at 18%. Can you imagine what a business loan would they're, have been? They're, they're in the 20s yeah. to make money off of that because, you know, they're, they're turning around taking your deposit and lending it out to somebody else. Yeah. So you can see where people would be really upset and, and you know, this this is going to be a major struggle. I think this is kind of now tying into what's happening when this Olympic team comes around. Now, in addition to that, and what I think people rightly say 
makes this such a major event is because the big event, the big game that we'll eventually talk about is against the Russians, mm -hmm. against the Soviet Union, not Russia, you know, the, the communist Soviet Union in the height of the Cold War. Yeah, and we talked about it in our 1984 Summer Olympic episode where I kind of gave a little bit of a backdrop leading mm -hmm. up to 1984. And 1976 for the U.S., was probably a low point for Olympic Games. Even though there were some individual successes in Montreal with the Summer Games, I think it was in that Olympics, the Soviet Union not only won the most gold medals, but it was by a lot. And I think for, for Americans who followed the Olympics, there was definitely a degree of frustration due to the fact that the summer, you know, the Olympic Games was always kind of like the United States. This is this for the U.S. Man, we're the best. And in Montreal, they pretty much got their butts kicked. Yeah. And the Soviet Union, in addition to not only, you know, history has has a way of correcting itself. If people in the United States only knew how much the people of the Soviet Union suffered, right during this time, but we didn't see that. All we saw was, you know, the, the grandeur of the Soviet Republic, you know, the, the Politburo and what they were presenting to mm -hmm. the world. We didn't see that. All we saw was the fact that, you know, the Soviets are, are killing us in, in certain things. And, and it was frustrating. It was, it was just, you know, anytime you're like, oh, the, this guy's got a great chance to win the gold medal. And then all of a sudden this Russian dude just comes flying out of nowhere. Oh, he wins the gold medal. And. And it's like, you know, as a little kid, you're like, what? And, you know, it's like as, it, it, as a fan, you're, you're frustrated. But the Soviet Union in the 70s might have been, that might have been, I would say, their greatest decade of strength. It's because they were juiced. Well, we know that now. I mean, that, what, what was the name of that weightlifter? Do you remember the, the, the dude with the big belly? Oh, I forget. I couldn't. It, that won everything. That guy probably had every steroid ever created in his body. Oh sure, and and a lot of them, a lot of them did because, you know, it, when you're being trained by the government and the government is the one giving you these substances, yeah, you know, you're going to, uh, yeah, it, it was just it was what it was, you know, as far as what the what the Soviets were doing, and it's very well documented that they that they used many many different uh, performance enhancing drugs, and but we didn't know that. Yeah, but you know, yet another part of the narrative you know it, it, there's obviously a propaganda war that takes place on both sides sure you know so but at least part of the narrative that we were given at that age growing up is you know the big bad soviets so that's kind of in the backdrop of what's happening go ahead but, but real quick you know despite all that i think the one the one sport where i think the world truly recognized the greatness was the soviet hockey team Right, and I don't think anybody really ever, you know, uh, accused them of cheating. Oh or, no, you know they were they weren't necessarily on steroids, but I mean, they, were, they were just great. They were they were the best team in the world, yeah. hands down. They would go on these tours in the United States just to show how great they were, and they would beat up these NHL teams. I think the one year I think it was '76. You know, the the Flyers were in the middle of the Broad Street Bullies. And they were the only NHL team to win. Because they beat the tar out of them. And, and they went out very specifically yeah. just to rough them up. And the Soviets, you know, they came to expect a hockey game and they showed up to a fight. <laughs> right. Um, but that was the only game that, that was won during that tour. And 
I mean, they had the Red Army hockey team had this incredible record. I mean, they were considered not only in in an Olympic era of the best of the best. They were probably the preeminent event or team of any country of any sport in Olympics at that time. Right, because back then, unlike now, if you were an Olympian, you had to be an amateur. Yes. And the Soviet Union, quote unquote, their team, they were amateurs because they all were soldiers in the army. Yeah, that's why they called it the Red Army team. And they never did anything but play hockey. All they did was play hockey. Right. But they were great at it. And you know, as and that that was a big deal, that amateur status, as Scott and I know because of the you know, the great Jim Thorpe, you know, who's from, you know, not too far from here, you know, Carlisle, Pennsylvania is where he kind of, you know, grew up in the um, in the what the what was the name of the Indian Boys School that he went to? I thought it was just called the Carlisle Boys School. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so but you know, he was a great athlete who played some summer baseball and got probably paid a few bucks to do it and then had his gold medal stripped from him. Mm-hmm. So it was something that they took seriously, but through kind of this technicality of allowing them to serve in the army, they got to be in essence paid professionals that got to play against, you know, 18, 19 year old kids. Yeah. And they were the dominant team from, they lost to the United the US won the gold medal in 1960 at Squaw Valley. And after that, it was the Soviets. Right. 1964, 1968, 1972, 1976. Gold yep. medal, gold medal, gold medal, gold medal. Not close. And and their goals against was outrageous. And they just dominated opponent uh, opponents. I don't know how. Did they? I think they only lost once in Olympic play in, in that you know yeah. almost twenty year period. Very similar to what the U.S. basketball team yes. did prior to the nineteen seventy two Olympics. Yes, where of course the Russians stole the gold medal from. Well, them. the referees stole the game. <laughs> well, yeah, but, yeah. Those gold medal, those silver medals are actually sitting in a vault somewhere. But that you know what you could argue and say that that you know the, the nineteen seventy two Munich. You know, with the assassination of the Israeli athletes, right? You know, it just kind of cast this pall. But once again, I'm on, too young. I have no memory of that. Of the of the, but leading up into 1980s, like you know, Munich did not go so well, right? Montreal was a financial disaster for the city. For Montreal, it, it sure. took them 20 years to recover from. So you're going into 1980, and remember the the Winter Olympics always occurred before the Summer Olympics, mm-hmm. and so. There was a little bit of hesitation from from Americans, like, eh, you know, it's like, ah, eh, the Olympics are coming up. I don't know how many people, other than maybe little kids like us, were really, really looking forward to watching the Olympic Games. Well, and, you know, kind of give a little more of a backdrop to what was happening, just with the timeline. So another major world event, and I do remember this. This is one of the first world events that popped onto my radar. So, you know, we talked about Three Mile Island, mm-hmm. right? You know, we talked about the gas crisis. I'm aware of it. Had mom and dad not had a gas station, I would not have been, but I was definitely aware of it. Sure. Uh, the uh, the overthrow of the Shah of Iran yes. is, uh, you know, and the, the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, comes to power. This has a direct bearing on what's going to happen later on, yes. later on with the Olympics. So I do remember the the whole Ayatollah. And and the Iran and Iran and you know eventually we uh, the U.S. hostages are taken uh, by the Iranians. How well do you remember that situation? Well, I remember watching on TV the fact that the Shah 
was brought into the United States. Which caused a major problem. He had to come in and he had a surgery performed mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. So he came into Philly and I, because I do remember him being interviewed by our local TV station, News 8, uh, WGAL. And I remember that being a big deal because we talked about it in school the next day. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's like, what are your thoughts on it? And then because at the time uh, I didn't know what exactly was going on in Iran, but it was within, what, weeks after that, that the Shah... He gets overthrown. He gets overthrown. Yeah, and Ayatollah Khomeini takes power. So I I want to play a song for you and see if you remember this. I specifically remember this being on the radio. The the local DJs would play this. And so... Do you remember this? I do. Kudos to Spotify for having it. It's... <laughs> I remember that. Sure. Yeah. Now, even though we're heard in 22 countries worldwide, Iran is not one of them. So okay. I think right. we're all right. So they won't be mad at us. I don't think so. So, uh, once again, this helps put it on my radar. As as a kid, you know, listening to the local, just regular pop radio that that we have here, our FM 97, right. you know, the, the DJs would play that. Yeah. And it was... There was this sentiment at the time where America's starting to feel feel down, and and we're also feeling like we're we're at risk around the world. America's starting to feel very vulnerable, right? And you know, coming out of World War II, a lot of the world hailed the United States as you know, I wouldn't say the saviors, but the United States when the United States got involved in World War II. The, within a year, Europe was within control of the, you know, of the Allies. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that, but the United States played a big part in the ending of World War II. Coming out of that, you know, you you go into the you go into the late forties into the fifties. You have Eisenhower's president. There's this incredible boom of success, and now for the first time in twenty years, post-war or 30 years, I guess you could look at it that way. But in 30 years, now all of a sudden we're starting to struggle with inflation. Sure. Starting, you know, things are starting to take a turn. And the the whole situation with Iran is that, you know, the rest of the world doesn't view the United States the way that Americans view themselves in, in certain areas. And and Iran proved to be one of those areas. Right. They they definitely at the time did not fear the United States, the fact that they, they took these hostages. And it was, from what I understand directly, a result because we were friendly to the Shah. Yes. You know, that's, we, that, we, the, the U.S. government always wanted to have some type of presence there in the Middle East. And the Shah was considered our ally and we backed the Shah and then he gets overthrown and then we not only backed him, but we also took him into the country. The consensus on on history from an American viewpoint is that there were people within the American government that would back certain regimes in areas of the world that they felt were going to, I guess they could, I wouldn't say control, but to have favor, you know, gather favor. And so because the Shah looked favorably upon America. It, they weren't, you know, the United States wasn't, didn't feel threatened. And forget the fact that the Shah of Iran was incredibly corrupt and he was, he was a brutal leader. 
uh, killed millions of people. He's very comparable to um, uh, Hussein, Saddam, Saddam Hussein. Hussein. Yeah, very comparable in, in terms of how he led a country. And but he was he was known as a brutal leader, and it, you know, it's you can understand why people rebelled against uh, you know somebody that was big in corruption. And but from the United States side, you know they they felt he was the best that uh, you know he kept control of the country, and that there wouldn't be any threat to the rest of the Middle East. So in November of 1979, a a group of students they they take 52 American hostages. In Iran, then in December of 1979, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and the the U.S. and a lot of the world they're they're afraid now that you know these there's a lot of movement going on in this region, and that there's this you know it's the Cold War as we've said many times here is we're going to have to spread to communism. That's kind of what we feared in Vietnam initially. Mm-hmm. That's you know what, how we got our presence there. The it is now stated that we're not going to go to the Summer Olympics in 1980. Yeah, you know, based upon this invasion of Afghanistan, we're we're going to back out. We're not going to go. Obviously, we're not going to back out of the Winter Olympics because we're hosting the Winter Olympics. Yeah, yeah, that would be tough. But the but the Summer Olympics are going to be in the Soviet Union, so we're not going to go. Now the question is, and they talk about this in the movie Miracle. The, the question is, all right, so now are the, are the Soviets going to back out of the Winter Olympics in the United States, which would have been, which would have been horrible as they depict, you know, Herb Brooks. He wants to beat the best. His whole dream is to beat the Russians. Right. And, and if he has this stolen from him, you know, it'll be just a hollow victory. And that ended up being kind of what 84 felt like in the Summer Olympics when the Soviet bloc countries end up boycotting you know, the, the Los Did it Angeles. feel that way though? Because when we talked about it in our in our episode, you know, it was it was a lot of feel good. Oh yeah, in the it country was, it was definitely feel good. We, we won a lot of because of the we liked it. We won a lot of McDonald's cheeseburgers and fries because right. of it. But I think at that particular point, it, it, you could argue and say that that was the greatest United States Olympic team in history, and the fact that they didn't get to go up against the Soviets, especially. Because, you know, the United States was out of 1980, which was in Moscow. So the last time that they competed against the Soviets in the Summer Games was 76. And I think they really, I think a lot of people would have liked to have seen that type of a rematch. Especially from the success of this 1980 hockey team. And as a competitor, you know, you want to play the best. If, you do. If, if you, you want to you wanna be the best, you got to beat the best. And it's, if someone doesn't try if someone is out because of an injury it just doesn't feel right and so this was looming over the this u.s hockey team and you know fortunately uh history uh as we find out from history that the soviets do decide to come why because they want to shove it in our face because they they believe rightly so they are the best team in the world i think the movie does a really good job of depicting which was true because espn did a 30 for 30 on the Miracle on Ice, and they did it completely from the Soviet side. They, all they did was interview the Soviet players and the coaching. And they said, yes, we were arrogant because right. we were the best team in the world. So the movie does a great job of just that, I wouldn't say it's kind of that, I wouldn't say glassy-eyed, but it's kind of that 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 sense of imperial, you know, imperialism over 
when the when the United States ends up playing the Soviet Union, and just the way that the Soviet players looked at the U.S. players in the movie, I thought was very appropriate because they do look down at the players like, you know, we're just gonna we're just gonna destroy you, which they had done three days before the Olympics started, right? In a game at Madison Square Garden. It if you were Vince McMahon running the uh, the WWF back then, eventually the, the WWE, this is what you would have scripted. Sure, you I couldn't mean, you, have scripted it any better. You have you have the All American boy, Bob Backlund, you know, going against the uh, the Iron Sheik or, or <laughs> Ivan whoever wh- wh- I forget what the big Russian's name was that they used to roll out there in, in the wrestling matches. Was it uh, Briskalov? Um, yeah, I don't know. But it, but that was the idea is, is you know you you have this the heel you know yeah. you have the evil guy that that you're out there and and you know we're going to we we it's it could have been scripted any better sure. from from what they had but you know for that for the the U.S. hockey team to get there and have a chance at winning they had to take an unconventional path and even down to the hiring of Herb Brooks was a little bit controversial to begin with. It was. Herb Brooks is definitely a coach that I don't know is out there anymore, that that type of a coach. And for those of us that are Flyers fans, we had somebody similar to Herb Brooks that coached the Flyers for the majority of the 1980s, and that was a guy by the name of Mike Keenan. And the thing about coaches like Herb and like Iron Mike, that they you, you know affectionately called him, they were known to get incredible results out of teams, but they had a tendency to wear out their welcome because of their coaching style. And Herb, it was he was a known entity going into this uh, you know this particular Olympics with the type of coaching style, but it was successful. He had won, I think, was it three in a row or I three out so. of four? It was yeah. three in a row at, at Minnesota. Yeah, super successful. I mean, he was the most successful college coach at the time yes and they felt that you know why not have the the most successful college hockey coach coach the amateurs in this olympic tournament but but herb decided to do something completely different and instead of just fielding an all-star team which is normally what you would do for something like that you just hit the best and you roll them out there and you go with that herb realized they weren't going to win that way you know, they sure they were talented, but they weren't as talented as what the Russians were, where he needed to have a team. And one of the reasons why I, I love this the story so much is because I like team sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can appreciate individual sports. I, I you know, we talked about Eric Hyden, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wonderful what he accomplished, but he did it by himself. There's something beautiful about when you can work as a team. You know, you and I played many team sports, and there's sometimes you could have a very talented team and not win, just because egos got in the way, personalities, uh, you were in conflict. But there are other times you weren't as talented, but you could just mesh together, and it was it was something to behold. Having having coached baseball at pretty much every level from t-ball up to college, and seeing all-star teams and watching, you know my boys and you help me coach i would think and you would probably agree with me when i would say that when i was tasked to coach these you know tournament teams in little league or whatever 
but I could probably take our regular season team and beat that tournament team Mm -hmm. just because by the end of the year, you knew what each player was going to give you and you knew how to put it in place. And those kids were used to playing with each other. Whereas with an all-star team, it's kind of like, what can I do? You know, as, as a player, you know, you want to stand out, you want to, you're, you're the star. And that's the hard part about putting a team of stars together. Herb, uh, you know, Kurt Russell mentions that in the movie is I don't want the best team. I want the right team. Correct. And that is a great line because it's so true. You can you can go out there with a, with a team of scrappers and beat an all-star team based on heart alone if, if you have the right players together, and that's what he was looking for. Right, right. So he had a master plan, you know, and he walked into this, and he, he decided early on that he was just going to use psychological warfare against his players. And you and I have had coaches in the past. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, this was not uncommon. And oh, it was. You get you get those guys from the nineteen seventies and the and especially the early to mid nineteen eighties. Those coaches were could be hard. I, I think if you were probably talk to like kids of you know kids today, your nephews, my kids, my sons, they didn't get they didn't have to experience that. No, they didn't have to experience a coach that would intentionally withhold water from you at practice <laughs> well, like we when, had. It, when it's 100 degrees outside yeah. and it was a sign of weakness because and 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 i'm telling you listeners this is absolutely true our coach our soccer coach once told us when when we were dying of thirst that water is for winners and basically if you can't do the drill right in practice you don't deserve water you have you have to earn the right to water can you imagine doing that today? <laughs> I mean, the no. liability that you would have no. as a school. But honestly, I remember desperately, desperately wanting to get something to drink. And then finally, when we did the drill right, running over and just sucking down the water. But back in the day, how many kids passed out because they no. were? Nobody did. Nobody did. You know, it was, I guess we we're just used to the elements. And, and I'll say this about it. And it, I, this is kind of what, what Herb Brooks was going for. Now, and what he accomplished is... It will make you mentally tough. And so what he did is turn the players against him. And I and our coach, I don't know if our coach, uh, Coach Rice, I don't know if you're listening, but you, I, I, you know you were playing the <laughs> psychological games out there. But you would, as, as a player, you didn't like him. And it actually kind of helped you uh, with, your, with your teammates. You would bond with them. There were some kids usually at the beginning of the season that you had issues with that yeah. you didn't necessarily get along with but yeah if you shared a common hatred of your coach <laughs> it yeah. did have a bonding effect to it and they do mention that in the movie where the the trainer and uh craig ramsey's play, mm-hmm. play by noah emmerich they're sitting Patrick. they're sitting in the yes and they're sitting in the car and he says well you know maybe if they hate herb they won't hate each other because the the whole basis of the movie was bringing these two programs together of guys that were at war in college. Sure, the the, the two top programs in the nation at the time, you know, were Minnesota and Boston, mm-hmm. and so that's where Herb picked his teams from. Which, you know, the instead of going with the All Star team and going across the country, he 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 was the coach of Minnesota, so he mostly picked guys from Minnesota. And their number one chief rival that they hated each other was Boston. Mm-hmm. And so who did they pick most? The other guys from was Boston. 
for the most part. But if you think about it, I mean, if you're if you're going to go into essentially battle mm-hmm. with somebody, theoretically, wouldn't you want to go with your your toughest opponent if you're you know the coach on the other side? Because obviously those guys had a lot of heart and guts to sure. get where they did in the championships, you know, the NCAA finals. Yeah, yeah, and, and so it was a long struggle for them to kind of come on board. You know, Scott, and we keep referencing the movie, but the movie does do a great job of depicting, you know, the fact is, you know, uh, Brooks picks 26, 26 guys, only 20 are going to make the roster, and then based for six months, he starts cutting guys down, and they're, they're, they're bonding, they're, they're getting closer together. They The movie has that one scene, which is a true scene, where they're in Norway. And they have a tie, and the guys aren't taking it seriously. And Norway is not a great team. It's their first preseason game. And they, you know, they whether it happened or not, I don't know. But in the movie that they're depicting, they're talking about the girls in the stands, and they're just they're just kind of mailing it in. And and Brooks is is fuming afterwards, and he makes him basically run sprints on the ice, you know, skate on the ice, and just nonstop. They say it did happen, and mm-hmm. nobody knows exactly how long it went on. Or, or how many t- times they had to go back and forth. Nobody has any memory because, you know, he was just like, again, again, again. They went on, and, and the scene where they actually shut the lights off in the arena is true. Yeah. Because everybody, all the staff, and left for the night because they were out there just doing the wind sprints on the ice, and he just kept doing it again and again. He was, he was you know, I'm sure people watching it thought it was, you know, kind of barbaric, kind of torturous, but he was trying to make a point. And I think they make a great point. I don't again. I don't know if it actually happens in real life. It, well, Rice did that to us. What did made us at the not not as much, but there was this one game. I still remember it. We we were playing a team that we easily should have beaten, mm-hmm. and we we were we were up. I remember it was we got up. It was like three or four three or four goals. We should have you know just hammered them, and so all the starters all get pulled out. We're jogging around the field. You know, the backups go in, and suddenly they give up a goal. And then they give up two, and then and then Rice is ticked. So then we had to go back into the game again, finish it out. When the game's over, he made us run sprints. And like it's like, and it was it was the same sort of thing. It was it was like, oh, you guys think you're going to mail it in against this team? When you play a real team down the road, they're, they're, you're not going to have a shot. And so he was just angry, and it was in front of all everybody that mm-hmm. was there. All the fans were there. They had to watch us do sprints. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like I said, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the, the the coaching style that that Herb Brooks has in throughout this tournament wasn't complete. I mean, yeah, he was he considered a little bit more off the rails than some of the other coaches. Yeah, right. But it wasn't that far off it the was, rails exactly. And that's the point. I'm glad you made it, Scott. And that's kind of what I was getting at. Is while yes, he was an extreme example of it. He this was not unusual for these players. No. So, yes, yes, he took it a little bit further, probably a lot further. But the fact is, these guys are only 10 years older than we are. Right. So they they grew up with this type of coaching. And I think it was Mike Rizzioni afterwards when he was talking about, this is years later after the movie was made and after Herb ends up dying in a car accident. But he was the one that said, you know, about reflecting on, on the 80 Olympics. He said... Herb had his probably his best talent was taking you to your breaking point and then backing off just before you got there. Yeah. And he just knew how to push, push all the right buttons and you can see it through the movie and, and 
it does happen legitimately. You know, he brings in a, a player that he didn't even bring onto the team. He was there for the tryouts. Sure. Didn't get selected. But all of a sudden, two-thirds of the way in, he brings this guy in. And it was strictly to bond the team together. Just to mess with the guys. He just wanted to mess with them. He wanted to bring them closer as a team. And he did things like that, even to the the, the true story where Jim Craig doesn't fill out the psychological profile. Mm-hmm. So, you know, later on, uh, you know, Herb tells Craig, "I'm I'm going to sit you. I'm going to go. I'm going to. I'm. You're you're not giving me everything. It's my you fault. Got. It's my fault. I played you too much." He yeah. says, and so uh, you know, Craig is is fighting for his for his job, but at, at some point. He's like, you know, you're just not giving me everything. And he goes, you want me to fill out the profile? Because he, he, you know, didn't do it. He's the only player that didn't. You want me to fill out the profile? I'll fill out the profile. He goes, no, I don't want the, I don't want you to fill out the profile. I want to see the guy who had the guts to tell me I'm not filling out the profile. You know, it's just, right. it kind of like flipped the switch. All right. It, so it I, different. I just heard an interview with Jim Craig. Okay. And, and he talks about that somewhat. So, and yes, he did not do the test. And that's true. But as they, you know, they do talk about this in the movie, but it's it's legitimate. The fact he was, he had, you know, the fact that his mother passed away mm-hmm. was weighing heavily on him. And the fact that his father lost his job during this whole ordeal was weighing heavily on him because Jim Craig had a contract waiting for him with the Atlanta Flames. Okay. You know, we talk about our, our listeners in Atlanta. Yes. You know, back back before they moved to Calgary, the Flames are in Atlanta, and Jim Craig can bail his father out financially. And the and it, the only reason he's playing the Olympics is because his mother wanted him to. Yeah. Because back then, it was a bigger deal to play for your country. It was. You know that that it, you, that's who you're playing for. You're playing for the USA. Yeah, and the you know you're right. He suspended or you know basically delayed his earning potential to participate in this. And when he agreed to be a part of it, you think about the Olympics being this two week thing, this two week tournament for hockey, but it was seven months of preparation to get to that point. And so Craig said he had, he, he was planning on doing the survey. Eventually he didn't do it. And he said, his dad called him that night, the night he gets the test when everyone else was working on it. His dad calls him and he lost his job, you know, and, and he's, you know, this is devastating to me. He says, my dad's crying on the mm-hmm. phone and he's, he's out of work. You know, his mom passed away and, and you know, it's like, and he kind of is the guy that could be the one that's, that steps in as the savior. And he said, that's the reason I didn't do it that night. It's just mentally. He just, you know, my dad lost a job and I was on the phone with him and, you know, you know, imagine that if, you know, you're, you're this young kid and, and having to deal with all this, knowing sure. that I could be, I could step in at any moment and sign this contract he said uh, that Herb Brooks actually worked out a loan for his father. No. Oh. And he said that, you know, people, a lot of people don't know that, that he bridged the gap. He, I don't know that it was his own resources, but he got it done. And he said he got our family to a point where we were comfortable making it through the Olympics. Sure. So it, it was, you know, obviously as an amateur, Jim can't get the money. And it can't be given, but somehow, I don't know if, if he, you know, like I said, it was a bank or whatever it was, but he allowed a loan to go through that the family could at least survive. Yeah. And I think it's a pretty cool thing to see as the, as, a, as the movie kind of progresses, 
instead of her being the antagonist that you see these guys rallying around him, mm-hmm. which is what the team eventually eventually gets to do. You know, they're, they're fighting in the beginning. They hate Herb. But you can tell, like, when they're hitting December of 79, as they're getting further into their exhibition season, and they show the scene there at Christmas where they actually get him a gift. A whip. Yeah. and yeah. But, I mean, it was in jest. Sure. And I think that at that point they're starting to understand that – Everything that he's doing, and it, that was true, 100% true. Everything that he was doing to that team was in preparation for them to win the Olympics. And and Herb, his master plan was to create this different style to take on the Russians. And he said that we always tried to play North American hockey, you know, Canadian-style hockey, whenever we took on the team. And he said, you know, you have to take it to the Russians. You have to be able to skate with them. That you have to play a hybrid where it's the, you know, kind of, you, you talked about the Broad Street bullies that that mauled the Russians when they were over. But then you also have to mix it in with incredible skating. Mm-hmm. And that is why he said, you know, they were going to be the best conditioned team over there. And that, that, that was one of the things where they might not have been able to match the Soviets with the, with the skills that they had, but there was nothing holding him back from actually being in better shape. And I thought about that when they showed that Christmas scene, you know, when you know, Herb leaves and then they go out and they play football. And I thought those guys at that point would have been so incredibly fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, and that scene where they're actually playing football, I mean, hockey is one of the most physically demanding sports anyway. But then on top of that, you take it to another level of the conditioning that they were doing. And, Again, referencing the movie when he's being interviewed for the potential to being the the head coach of the hockey team, he mentions the fact that the reason why the Soviets are so great is not yes, it's because they have the best players, but they are the best team, right? And the reason why they win every year and every game is the fact that by the third period, nobody can stay with them, right? They like they basically have just hammered on the team for two periods, and the third period they control. Okay. Well, let's get into the, the what happens. First of all, leading up to the Olympics, you mentioned about uh, a game that was with the Russians, uh, Madison Square Garden, right before the Olympics. Yeah, so three days before the Olympics officially uh, are to open, and they scheduled an exhibition of the United States against the Soviet Union three days before the start of the Olympics. Why on earth would they do that? I guess they wanted to see where they stood, you know, where they were at as, as a team. And I think it was, I think it was a stroke of genius because I think the U S team had had quite a, quite a bit of success leading up to that point and it kind of slapped them back into reality and, and told them that they are still not there yet. You know, they still have a ways to go and they still need to come, you know, they're not completely there as a unit. And it also gave them a chance to see what the Soviets are doing on the ice. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And and I think it's like in any other sport, the unknown makes things difficult. But when you you have a, an opponent, and you're like, okay, I've seen him do this. I, I know what they're in hockey, what their shifts are like. I, I know where this, this guy likes to favor the left, the right, what what they're doing. It's, it's when you, you face that pitcher the second time through the lineup, it's a lot easier than the first time. And I think there was such a mystique with this Soviet team, I think Brooks wanted these guys to, to, you know, say, look, all right, all right, we experienced them. 
we experienced this. It's it's not going to get worse than this. And it was a way to kind of like learn how to prepare for them so that the first time they faced him wasn't in the Olympics. Sure. Yeah. And the fact that, yeah, because I think had they not played in the exhibition before the Olympics started, they get to the medal round. Who knows what happens? Because like you said, intimidation could be such a, such a factor. And let's face it, uh, you know, you and I did play for, in our area, our, our soccer team was always a, a very highly ranked team in the state. Mm-hmm. We were a dominant team. We expected to win. Sure. And you could literally see uh, the, the intimidation on our opponents when we would walk onto a field because we were structured, you know, we had a, a very, uh, we, we marched in rehearsed. We rehearsed our entrance into the, uh, to the stadium. Yeah. We, we rehearsed our warmups side by side partner. And you literally marched in like, you know, in, in, in order. And we didn't run through their side of the field and run through their warmups. We ran around them. Yeah. And just to let them know we're here. Right. And the teams paid attention to that. And, Seeing that kind of look in other players' eyes, I can certainly see where this, you know, the getting that starry eyed look for the U.S. hockey team when they would have played the Soviets for the very first time. I'm sure that's what happened in, in Madison Square Garden. Right. So they come off that defeat and then they go up to Lake Placid, you know, this tiny little hamlet in, in New York, certainly not this major, major uh, metropolis. And so the sleepy little town, here comes the, the U.S. hockey team, not, and they're not necessarily expecting much. And then the tournament starts, mm-hmm. and they, they start out, and they have their, their opening uh, game against Sweden. You know, Sweden's a good team. Very good team. But they, they can't lose to Sweden if they have any hopes of uh, making it to the medal round. Yes. And Sweden has a goaltender who ends up being very, very popular with the Philadelphia Flyers by the name of Pelly Lindbergh. I love Pelly Lindbergh. Who, you know, I know the Flyers had Ron Hextall and uh, Pelly. Pelly, uh, Pelly, Pelly, Pelly for us as Flyers fans, where he's right up there with like Bernie Perrant with sure. the, on the Mount Rushmore. Undersized guy, players. just incredibly talented. Died in a car crash. Way too young. Yeah. So you know, Sweden is a good team. Yeah. I think Sweden. Sweden at the time was ranked third in the world. When you may they, be right. When they played, yeah. I believe so. I mean, it's a major, it's a major. So the U.S. team, they come from behind and they tie Sweden. Yeah, well, Sweden jumps out to a lead, which ends up being kind of the calling card of this 1980 Olympic, the, the, men, the U.S. men's team, is the fact that they fell behind in every single game that they played in this entire tournament. Which is probably what helps them win at the end is because you you have to be able to fight back from adversity you know when you'll watch like say the nfl and you'll watch a game yes it's great when you you march down and you score right away what happens when things start when they're not going your way anymore do you have the ability to kind of fight back through that uh, you know when when things have turned on you there's so many people that are great front runners mm-hmm. but how many people the moment things go bad start hanging their head and they kind of give up Sure. Yeah, it's it's easy when you're super talented to blow teams out. Yeah. But when you actually are across from somebody that is your equal, how do you how do you find a way to win? Right. And I know Andre Agassi talked about that many times when he used to play opponents like a Pete Sampras. Like Pete Sampras is every bit as good. You can't overwhelm a Pete Sampras. How do you beat a Pete Sampras? And that's why they had so many great battles over the years. But you see that 
time and time again in many sports. Yep, and and for some reason, ABC was in on this team. They were. We were we were following them. I mean, we were watching these games because there weren't too many besides Eric Hyden. There wasn't a whole lot going on. But this wasn't a team that was expected necessarily to medal. The first game against Sweden, I think, drew some excitement because it was a tie. Sweden was a very highly ranked team, mm-hmm. and it was the way they tied because it was a two-to-one game. They're losing in the third period. They pull Craig. They put in a sixth attacker, and they scored with, what, 15 seconds left to tie? So it was kind of exhilarating, even though they didn't win the game. Right. But it was like the greatest tie ever in U.S. hockey history because it kept them alive. And then, and um, I think ABC saw that, hey, you know, it was, it was, it was a very exciting ending. Right. And then they turn around the following week. If you want to talk well, about the Czechoslovakia. Well, well I'll, I'll give you the timeline because I actually have the dates here. So, so that first game was February 12th, 1980. They came back two days later and they played Czechoslovakia. The number two ranked team in the, the world. Number two ranked team in the world. And they beat them seven to three. They hammered them. Now they were losing. They lost their losing they, in the they, very they, beginning. They were behind every game that they were in. But as Herb told them when they started all this conditioning was the fact that they wore teams down. Because they right, because they were the best skaters out there. They were the most conditioned sure. team out there. Yeah. And it showed. It pro- he proved it right. Third period is where they dominated. They would always yeah, they would always be the dominant team in the third period. And uh it happened everywhere and they ended up being the more dominant team against the Soviets later on. But yeah, they came out and they shocked Czechoslovakia. And I think ABC at that point, that woke up a mm-hmm. lot brought a lot of people's eyes to to this hockey team. Okay, so there's a little buzz going. So the you know, back to back, you know, games is February fourteenth. We now go to February sixteenth, nineteen eighty. USA versus Norway. You know, remember that remember that team where they tied three three and the guys were puking on the ice afterwards from from all the skating? They ended up winning that game five to one. Yeah. Yeah. Well also but I think it's also important to note that after that entire incident with the lights out and them doing sprints mm-hmm. at the uh you know in norway they did end up playing norway again a couple of days later it was uh, in a, in the uh, second game of the exhibition and they did win that one nine to nothing okay so they, so they you know the message was sent clearly and it came across so then we, we move on to february 18th game four against romania what does the u.s team do well of course they fall behind but then they win seven to two mm-hmm yeah, and they, they've really started to show an ability to kind of score in flurries sure. in the third period where they are – the system seems to take a little bit in the beginning when the other teams are fresh, but the conditioning is really starting attack, to – Attack, 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 attack. he is relentless. And, you know, I think that's another reason why this team was captivating because that attacking style, it's – you know, you're not sitting back. You're not just trying to defend – you're going right for it. And that that's that's the best type of offense to watch. Especially for you know, for us as young viewers, we didn't really know hockey other than, you know, we heard stories about the Broad Street Bullies. Sure. We kinda knew the Flyers. Um and, and but this was kind of similar. I mean, it was an aggressive style of hockey where they weren't just trying to be fluid out there and, and skating to spots. It, it it was it was aggressive and they hit and they were end-to-end, and it was fast, up and down. It was exciting. These were high-scoring games. 
you know, seven to three, five to one. It was just, uh, you know, it was it was it was cool because it was exciting hockey. Mm-hmm. And then, so the final game that we're going to talk about in this episode is Game Five in the uh, the, the group round, and that's against West Germany. And that a bit closer because now we're now we're playing stiffer competition. The U.S. wins that game four to two, and that's February twentieth, nineteen eighty. Yeah, and so that 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 gets them into the medal round, and somehow, some way. The United States team ends up getting through the the entire first stretch of the Olympics without a without a single loss. So, at this point, America is at fever pitch for these young upstart Americans because we're going to face the Soviet Union, not for the gold medal, but in the medal round. And this is the biggest event that's happening in our country at at this time. Absolutely. And we're going to step aside for part one of our look back on the 1980 United States men's hockey team. And once again, we just want to thank you for listening to the Gen X Playback Show. We are now up to number 12 in feed spots. Top 40. I saw that. Gen X. I was pretty excited by uh, that. You know, podcasts about Generation X. So we would can't do it without you and we certainly want to thank everybody for tuning in and we hope you're enjoying this episode yeah hopefully uh you you are as well and please come back and uh you know for those of you don't know i'm not going to tell you who wins the the, (laughs) the next game so you got to come back and find out all right so join us again next week for part two thanks for listening to the gen x playback show we're the brothers hi i'm scott and i'm sean and we'll see you then see you